This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. The senator's new book, Bending Towards Justice, is not about his life's list of accomplishments uh, so much as it is about one central achievement, his prosecution more than a decade and a half ago of a couple of those responsible uh, for the 1963 Birmingham church bombing. Four young African-American girls died and 22 others were injured in that horrendous racially motivated attack on a Baptist church. Uh, and for years, uh, no one was held accountable. Then in 1977, Robert Chambliss, a KKK member known as Dynamite Bob, was brought to trial. And as it happened, uh, Doug, then a law student, skipped class to attend the proceedings and watched uh, Alabama Attorney General Bill Baxley secure a dramatic murder conviction. Doug was deeply affected by what he saw and heard in court, a profound example of justice being done. Although the FBI strongly suspected three other avowed white supremacists of involvement in the bombing, investigators were, thwart, were thwarted by a number of factors, including reluctant witnesses, a lack of physical evidence, and racial bias, and the case was closed again. One of the suspects died in 1994, but in the late 1990s, shortly after President Clinton appointed Doug U.S. Attorney in Alabama, uh, Doug learned that the investigation into the bombing had been reopened. The case then became his to prosecute, and he did vigorously, gaining guilty verdicts against the two remaining suspects in 2001 and 2002. At the time, uh, Doug heralded the verdicts as examples of justice eventually being served, no matter how long it took. But as we all know, racial violence in this country persists and racial tensions actually have increased in recent years. So by going back and recounting in detail the Birmingham bombing story, Senator Jones performs the valuable service of reminding us about a tragic historical chapter in the hope that we as a nation won't make the same mistakes moving forward toward a more perfect union. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Senator Doug Jones. Thank you. Wow. What a, what a really good crowd. I'm, I'm not used to speaking to crowds. I, well, you think I'm kidding. Um, you know, if you watch C-SPAN at all these days, you know, if you speak on the floor of the Senate, you're not speaking to anybody on the floor. I am so, uh, I'm really honored to be here at this just incredible place and this famous bookstore. Um, my wife, Louise, is here with me tonight, who just was trying to take a picture before I introduced her. Um, uh, but we, are, we really are. This is a, re a great honor for me. Uh, before we get started on the book, and let me tell you a little bit about this story, I would like to just mention, um, you know, this, is, uh, this has been a really tough week in Alabama. Um, we, we, an all-too-familiar scene in Alabama uh, is another weather-related tragedy. We have hurricanes. We have tornadoes. As the springtime approaches and, and, and the cold air seems to collide with the warm air, uh, we always have a spat of tornadoes. And uh, this week was, uh, was one of the worst we've had in, in a number of years, uh, where 23 people lost their life in a rural part of Alabama, just uh, in Lee County, where Auburn University is. And so as we finish up and we go this week, I do th hope you'll keep folks in Alabama uh, your thoughts and prayers, because we're really uh, doing an amazing job of helping each other, uh, believe it or not. When things like this happen in Alabama, um, there are no races or there are no religions. There are no economic uh, differences. It's we're all neighbors and we pull together. And that's what's happening. I hope to get down there uh, at some point in the next uh, couple of days to assess firsthand. But I want to just simply give a shout out to all the first responders and those folks who have helped over the last couple of days. So let me talk to you a little bit about this book. Uh, it was a labor of love, um, really a labor. Um, for me, uh, I'm not used to writing this kind of uh, um, book or memoir. I'm used to writing a lot of legal pleadings and briefs and things like that. Uh, but 
I, I did. I knew that early on after we achieved the convictions that we did in these cases, that it was something I felt like needed to be put down. Uh, there just needed to be a history of not only what happened in Birmingham, because we see a lot and we read a lot, and but but to kind of get behind the scenes a little bit about what was going on in Birmingham uh, at the time, how these cases kind of came together uh, for us, but also going back to to Bill Baxley, who uh, was talked about in the introduction. The first of these cases was tried in 1977. And that's when as a a second year law student at Cumberland Law School, I did cut classes. And I'll talk about that in a minute to watch the first of these cases, really never dreaming that 24 years later, I would be the U.S. attorney and have a chance and an opportunity uh, to finish that Uh, I think what my friend Bill Baxley started, uh, everyone knew that there were other people that were involved in these bombings. But to come back 24 years later uh, was really a remarkable journey for me. Um, I was nine, nine years old when this bomb exploded in downtown uh, Birmingham. The 16th Street Baptist Church sits right on the corner of the downtown area of Birmingham. Uh, It was the uh, oldest uh, African-American church in the city. They've been there since the late 1800s. Uh, it was where the meeting places took place. So many of the meeting places during the civil rights uh, era. I mean, you have had every major civil rights leader uh, in that uh, time frame that, has, that spoke from the pulpit of that church. Dr. King, Reverend Abernathy, Reverend Shuttlesworth, people like Jackie Robinson, uh, you name it. They came through the 16th Street Baptist Church. And because of that, that church was targeted. You know, it was, it was in 1963 that things really started to gel. I, and we use this in our case. Um, 1963 was a big year because it was the spring of 1963 uh, that the movement really came to Birmingham. Now, if you go back and you look at some history, uh, you'll see that a lot of things were going on in Birmingham. We had a lot of bombings in Birmingham over the course of about 30 or 40 years, so much so that Birmingham was called Birmingham. Uh, in 1957, Reverend Shuttlesworth, uh, Fred Shuttlesworth, and by the way, if you don't know very much about Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, you should. You should learn about him. Without a Fred Shuttlesworth, there would, might not have been a Dr. Martin Luther King. He was that important to the movement, especially uh, in Alabama and the South. Was an amazing guy who I got to know very well in the latter years of his life. But Fred Shuttlesworth, in 1957, tried to integrate a high school with his children. Uh, It was 1957, three years after Brown versus Board of Education, uh, that was decided in May of 1954. Fred decided he would enroll his two kids in an all-white high school in downtown Birmingham, Phillips High School. And he was, uh, and Fred was an incredibly brave guy. And he he was met by, he announced what he was going to do. And he was met there by a group uh, estimated of a couple of hundred white folks who were there to try to stop that. And among that group, there was a smaller group waiting for him when he and his wife pulled up. And this was caught on film, and I show this when I give longer presentations about the cases, which I've been doing uh, since the prosecutions. There was a film, there was a young man there that had gone to Phillips and was coming back to get his high school transcript, and he was working for a PBS station there. And he caught on film what happened to Fred, and he really got beat up. He got kicked. He was chased up and down. His wife was stabbed with a pocket knife in her hip. Um, and it's, but it set the stage because one of the men in that, one of the men in that group was Bobby Frank Cherry, who we indicted. Uh, we had two men, but Tommy Blanton and Bobby Frank Cherry. Cherry was part of that group in 1957 to try to stop school desegregation. Now, that was important for us because as it would happen later on, that's what was going on in Birmingham. Over the next six years, the civil rights movement in Alabama and elsewhere was growing. It was gaining a lot of momentum. Uh, and that caused a lot of concern for the white establishment and for the Klan. They were seeing their segregated way of life sliding away. You know, the Freedom Riders came through Birmingham, stopped at the Birmingham uh, uh, Greyhound bus station. Uh, and were beaten. John Lewis, my friend John Lewis, was part of that group. Their bus had been firebombed in, in Anniston about an hour outside of Birmingham before they finally got there. And 
that kind of set the stage because what was interesting is that there was a, when that happened there was a group of, of business leaders in from Birmingham that was in Japan. They were at a uh, it's either Rotary or Kiwanis I can't remember. Um, and when they saw what happened to the Freedom Riders, all of the their colleagues around the world were there and they were just stunned. They were appalled. And these business leaders who were no friends of the civil rights movement knew that their city was going to die, that they had to come back and change. And they came back to try to get rid of Bull Connor, the infamous police commissioner who had kept his police officers away from the Freedom Riders for 20 minutes in order to allow the Klan to have their way. And so they came back to change the form of government in the 1962. That happened. The citizens of Birmingham said, we're going to do something different. We want to go get away from this commission and go to a mayor council form of government. The only problem was they had to have an election. Bull Connor was going to run for mayor. And so Dr. King, who had been persuaded to come to Birmingham by Fred Shuttlesworth, they decided to postpone those children's marches that you've seen with the fire hoses and the dogs. They decided to postpone that because they knew that if they went and they're in the middle of this election, that... Bull Connor was likely to get elected mayor. And so they postponed those marches for twice to allow the runoff and Connor was defeated. Um, but he didn't leave office. He refused to leave. Uh, you know, it was the early signs of hell no, well, you won't go. And Connor stayed and the other group was there, but the marches took place. And that's when the fire hoses and the dogs, these were children's marches. That was the thing, Dr. King went to jail with, along with Reverend Abernathy when they first started. He penned the great letter from the Birmingham jail, which I always uh, tell people that they should, should read uh, ever so often. I hope that this year we're going to do something on the floor of the Senate with the letter from a Birmingham jail uh, that's I don't think ever been done before. But we're going to try to do that this April. The fire hoses and the dogs, they had the, the children there. It was the children's crusade. And they finally settled that. Um, to allow the desegregation of the lunch counters and the restrooms in Birmingham. But what was also happening with that very modest settlement, the Klan leader was saying that this would be Dr. King's epitaph. Sure enough, a bomb exploded that night at the A.G. Gaston Motel where Dr. King was staying. Uh, fortunately, he had left. But the die was cast. And now, all of a sudden, and this was important if you're, if you're, if you're a lawyer out there and you're thinking about this and you 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 understand how to put the pieces of this puzzle together, you understand how important that was. You had, a, you had desegregation of the schools in 1957. Now you had this new settlement and the Klan was really seeing their segregated uh, way of life going away. And so now uh, the church and the children had, you know, if you were a symbol of the movement, which they were now, you, you had a bullseye on your chest and your back. And so they were the targets and the Klan stepped up their, their violence, more bombings. You knew you had the Med Medgar Evers murder that occurred in June. You had the stand in the schoolhouse door that uh, occurred in June where George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door at the University of Alabama, blocked two kids, Vivian Malone and James Hood from going. Now, he stood aside. We all know now it was just a charade, more or less, for Wallace's political career. But when he did, the Klan was, when he stepped aside, the Klan was unhappy. And by the way, I don't know if y'all know this, but um, this little piece of history and trivia, but the, the two kids that were blocked, Vivian Malone was from Mobile, Alabama. James Hood was from the Gadsden area. Vivian Malone's sister happens to be a doctor up here in Washington, D.C. name is Sharon Malone Holder, married to my friend Eric Holder. So, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. So the, the, the movement was building significantly. I have a dream speech in August. But what was most significant in, in Birmingham was that a, a lawsuit that was filed after Fred Shuttlesworth tried to integrate the schools in 1957 finally came to a conclusion in August. And the courts ordered the schools to be desegregated. The Birmingham City Schools were going to be integrated for the first time. Now, George Wallace, who had stood himself in the schoolhouse door at the University of Alabama, decided he would not do that in an elementary school. He had state troopers surround the school. And the courts ordered them to cease and desist. And a couple of kids walked into that school. Um, and the city of Birmingham and the school system was forever changed. But Birmingham was truly 
a powder keg. It was ready to explode. And, and so we believe that the church was targeted because it was going to be a youth worship service. The youth and the church were coming together once again. And it was on September 15th when those four young girls went down to the ladies' lounge. Cynthia Morris Wesley, Addie Mae Collins, Carol Robertson, and Denise McNair, along with Addie Mae's sister, Sarah, were down in the ladies' lounge when that bomb exploded at about 1022. And um, the FBI came in. They did an incredible job. Uh, they had agents on the ground within minutes. They had agents flying down from Washington, D.C. Um, but unfortunately, like a lot of cases, they never could really prove. They knew who did it. I mean, they, they had a really good idea of who exploded that bomb within minutes because it was the, it was the usual suspects. Robert Chambliss, who we talked about, was one of the usual suspects. He was known as Dynamite Bob. He worked for the city of Birmingham, thought to be involved in a lot of the bombings. It never got investigated. The case was, was really an incredible effort by the FBI. And I know that that is kind of counterintuitive to what we now know about J. Edgar Hoover. And he had no affinity for the civil rights movement. And so you, there, there was a lot of people that thought for years uh, that the FBI did not investigate this properly. He really didn't want to have the case prosecuted. And I will tell you in all candor, that's not true. And I'm not a defender of J. Edgar Hoover by any stretch, but he put the resources in it. And he didn't put the resources in it because he was had any feelings about the civil rights movement, or I don't think because of these children's deaths. But J. Edgar Hoover was a, was a bureau man. He was, a, he was an FBI man. And there were the teletypes that we had putting more resources in saying that the, that the reputation of the bureau is at stake. And so regardless of his motive, he really put the time in. He put the resources in. But like so many cases, you can't always prosecute a case when the Klan clams up. And you don't have any real physical evidence that you could go on at the time. They couldn't even prove that it was dynamite. We believed it was dynamite. But you really didn't have any physical evidence. And you did have a lot of informant testimony. The Klan was rife with, with um, informants during this time. But they weren't going to testify. Even Robert Chambliss's wife was a, an informant. They didn't know it at the time. She was an informant during this whole time. But they weren't going to testify. And so the case got closed after five years by the federal government. Now, I want you to think about that, what I just said. Five years, we had the deaths of four children in what would appear to be a clear civil rights violation. A deaths, four of them. But it was a five-year statute of limitations. Now, in state court, where we ultimately tried our cases, this was a, uh, it was, there is no statute of limitations for murder. But in those days... There was a five-year statute of limitations in a civil rights case that resulted in a death. And that statute did not get changed until about 1994. 1994 before they finally expanded that. So the case got closed. Hoover closed the, the, the file. Um, I think he did the right thing, to be honest with you. They could have never prosecuted and gotten a conviction um, with the evidence that they had at the time. But it was 1970 when a young Alabama attorney general named Bill Baxley uh, reopened that case. And Bill and I talk about these cases a lot. We go around the country and we've talked about them a good bit. And he tells a story about being in law school and the fact that, that this really shook him to his core when this, the, when this happened. And he made a vow to try to do something about it. And when he was sworn in, he was only 28 years old when he was sworn in as the attorney general. And they, that was in the days before cell phones and watch lines and all that stuff. And they gave him a card that he could go anywhere in the state and dial a local number and get through to the state switchboard to make a, a, a long distance call. And before he was sworn in, he was given that card. And on the, in the corner of that card, he wrote the names of each of these four girls so that every time he pulled that card out, he would remember about why he was elected. And so in 1977, he indicted uh, Chambliss. A um, lot of interesting stories about the difficulties that he faced with the FBI. They were very, they held those files very closely. Uh, in fact, he tells the story, Jack Nelson, who many of you here may remember as a great newspaper guy. He was the L.A. Times uh, director, um, bureau chief for the L.A. Times here in D.C. for many, many years. He's from Alabama. He and, Bud, he and Baxley were buddies. 
And Baxley came up here one time and had dinner with him, as he often did, and they were complaining about it. Uh, he was complaining that not getting any help. And uh, Jack said, well, maybe I can do something. And he called Bill. Bill tells his story better than I do. He calls Bill the next morning, and he says, Bill, you still want to do something about that? He said, yeah. He said, now, you sure? Because I think I've got a way. He said, yeah, we'll, we're dead if we don't get more help from the FBI. Nelson says, well, Bill, I just want to make sure after a cup of coffee that you want to do that instead of the 12 beers you had last night. <laughs> And sure enough, he went and, 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 and had a discussion. And, and the discussion went something like this with the attorney general, who was Edward Levy at the time. You know, that there was the L.A. Times was about to bring all these families. There was a young Alabama attorney general going to reopen those cases. And they're going to bring the families up here and do a, a series about the reopened investigation that Baxley was trying to do. And that the FBI and the Justice Department was thwarting their efforts to bring to justice the killers of those four young girls. And he said, Mr. Attorney General, you got any comment? And he said, well, let me get back to you. And two weeks later, they started opening up the files. And Baxley was able to get the, the, the uh, conviction. I will tell you, sitting in that courtroom as a young lawyer, wanting to be a trial lawyer in 1977, it really does affect you. I sat in, a, in the balcony and watched Bill. I saw some of the testimony. Uh, of some of the witnesses, but it was the closing argument. It was in a day before you had all of this technology that we have now, and, and lawyers were, were real advocates, and they had black and white photographs of those children in, their, in the morgue uh, that they put in front of that jury, and there was not a dry in the house. And especially when Bill told the jury that on that particular day, that day in November of 1977, it would have been Denise McNair's 24th birthday. She would have been 24 that day, and he talked about bringing her killer to justice as a way of giving Denise a birthday present. It was an incredible, incredible story. And as this young kid, I never dreamed in my wildest imagination that I would have the opportunity uh, to try to, to, to finish that job. And I was uh, really fortunate in 1997 to be sworn in as the United States Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. This case had been reopened for about a year, although it was very quiet. Um, the FBI had looked, they had done a lot of work, and it became public when they had gone to interview Bobby Frank Cherry out in Texas. And they spent about four hours with him. He ran his mouth a lot, as he was prone to do. And um, they never got a real, he admitted about the Shuttlesworth thing, he admitted some other things, but not being part of that group. But what he did is this, and this was a real, this really hurt him. He went and he hired a lawyer, which one would think that a lawyer like Jerry Block over there would tell him what to do the right thing. But instead, this lawyer let him have a press conference. Whenever I talk to lawyers, I say, for God's sakes, never let your client talk to the media. Because as soon as as soon as this his press conference was shown in Alabama and Texas, where he was living, the phone started ringing. Um, at the FBI office. And one of the first people to call was his granddaughter, Cherry's granddaughter, said, thank God somebody's looking at this case. Everybody knows my grandfather was involved. He would brag about it. And she was not the only one. We had a series of people that called after seeing that news where Cherry had admitted being part of the group that bombed that church uh, and bragging about it, to be honest with you. Um, and and in our, when we finally got Cherry to trial, I used in my closing argument uh, all the lies he would tell. Gosh, I'm running late. Um, so we set about, and it was an amazing team that we put together. Uh, it really was a, an incredibly dedicated team. I told some folks the other day, you know, it was, it, it was like a judicial game of, of whack-a-mole almost, but in a positive way. Because we were all up, but some, something would hit us, somebody down. We would find a dead end and somebody would hit down and that somebody else would pop up with a new theory, a new this, a new that. We really spent a lot of time trying to make sure we did what we needed to do. And, and one of the things was going back to try to put the pieces of the puzzle together to tell the story that a lawyer is supposed to do in a trial, which is, a, which is theater. I mean, make no mistake, a trial is theater, and you have to tell a story as opposed to just throwing out piece after piece of evidence. 
And so we did that, and we went back to 1957, and we talked about Cherry being involved to try to stop the integration of public schools. Then we brought it home to the integration of the Birmingham schools, and we had incredible number of old FBI agents that called us that wanted to finish the job that they were involved in in 1963. Really some remarkable guys, sharp as tacks. And we also had a number of people, though, that were getting on up there in, in years. And it was we had two cases that we indicted. We were going to try them together. But Cherry feigned dementia. Y'all may remember this if you followed it. We were going to try Blanton and Cherry together beginning in April of 2001. And the next thing I know, at the very last minute, Cherry's lawyers gave something to the court where two experts said that he was uh, um, suffering from dementia. He'd had a mild heart attack and was suffering from dementia, could not participate in the trial, couldn't help in his defense, really had no clue. Well, that kind of threw us for a loop. So we went ahead and tried Blanton separately and dealt with Cherry later. The Blanton case, Blanton didn't open his mouth much over the years. We pulled together the pieces of, of the puzzle from the old evidence. The most critical pieces were, one, a fellow named James Lay, who was a civil defense volunteer. James Lay would worked at the post office and would leave, leave the work and go right around the home uh, and, the, and the churches to protect the, the, the homes of the civil rights leaders in the churches. And two weeks before the bombing, he's at one o'clock in the morning driving by 16th Street and he sees two white men out there by the steps where this bomb was planted right outside the ladies' lounge. And they hit his bright lights and they jump in the car and they leave. But he went to the FBI. I mean, he went to the Birmingham police and they told him at the time that night, just go on home, boy. You didn't see a damn thing. And, you know, I mean, look, boy was the name given to all black men by the Birmingham police at that time. But two weeks later, he's near uh, he's near the church and he goes and helps remove the bodies. And he tells the FBI what he saw. And he, he looked at a hundred or so photographs. And the two he picked out was Chambliss by the car and Blanton over the steps by the steps, holding what he called a grip, kind of a, a gym bag or something. And so it was a critical piece of evidence uh, for us. We had a, 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 an ex-girlfriend of, of uh, Tommy Blanton who would get, ride around with him and he would try to run over uh, black men on the street. He would stop at the grocery stores and pour acid on the, in the meat counters at, at there. I mean, these are just ugly, just vile human beings. Um, she was an interesting witness to say the least, but the, but the most significant and we, had a, we did have one informant, Mitchell Burns, who also testified. He rode around with Blanton for a, couple of, for a year or so with a tape recorder in the back seat of his, in, in the trunk of his car. Uh, we never got on tape uh, the smoking gun that we wanted, but there were, we used 20-something excerpts from the, um, from the various tape recordings that he made that included him and Bobby Cherry talking one time in front of Mitch and, and uh, Cherry running his mouth so much and... Blanton saying, don't talk so much around this old boy, don't know much, and we need to keep it that way. But the critical piece of evidence for Blanton was a tape recording, one of J. Edgar Hoover's famous bugs that was placed under uh, Blanton's kitchen sink after he had married his then-girlfriend, Jean. And on that tape, she's complaining about what he did on the Friday night of the bombing when he stood her up. And he said three times, he said, we were making the bomb. Uh, clearly on that tape, part of the group making the bomb. I don't have it to play for you tonight. I wish I did. Because to listen to them talk about the bombing that killed four girls and the cavalier attitude that he had about his shirt, and she's more concerned uh, about the fact that he stood her up to go out with somebody, Waylene, who was the person I talked about a minute ago, um, was just incredible. I mean, it was just absolutely stunning. But it it really was sealed the deal for us in the Blanton case, and it only took the jury a couple of hours um, to convict him. Cherry, we had to put it together differently because Cherry made those admissions, and he had made a lot of lies. He had said a lot of lies to the FBI agents that we plotted out in our closing argument. His, his granddaughter testified. We had other people. We had, we had a fellow from Texas uh, who worked with Cherry in 1980, and he was, I think, one of the most interesting witnesses that we had 
because if there is ever, and there's a lot about this case, by the way, that I think has relevance today. And there's a lot about this book that I think has relevance today. But his testimony in particular, well, because in 1980, he's cleaning apartments in Dallas, Texas, and Cherry's cleaning apartment, uh, cleaning the carpets there. And they're having a conversation with a couple other people, and they're all complaining about the rise of the Hispanic population mm. in Dallas in 1980. And Cherry, without quoting uh, the, the racial slurs that he used, says, you know, we just need to take care of those folks the same way we took care of the black folks in Birmingham. And he talked about terrorizing the black neighborhoods in Birmingham and being part of the group that bombed the church and killed those young girls. Um, you know, we had a number of things that just had to go right for us, folks. I just got to be honest with you. You know, we had so many witnesses that were that just almost hung on. We had coincidences, things that happened. For instance, I, I mentioned watching Bill Baxley's closing argument on a day that would have been Denise McNair's 24th birthday. Uh, when I did an opening statement in the Blanton case uh, in April of 2001, it was on a day that, that Carol Robertson would have been 51 years old. 51. And if you don't think that that really brings it home, to a jury when you've got a mother on a witness stand talking about the death of her daughter who was only 14 at the time and who would be 51 today. That jury gets it. They understand it. And now they knew that this case, that everything that I've written about here, as relevant it is, as I think it is for some of our political discourse today, it's really about victims. It's really about victims who never saw that full measure of justice. It was really remarkable for that jury to do that. They spent about two and a half hours with Cherry uh, on, on the Blanton conviction. And in Cherry, it was a little bit longer. They had to put a few more pieces of the puzzle together. But I'll tell you that the night before the closing arguments in the Cherry case, and there's a picture of this in the book, there's a picture of Denise McNair, and she's holding her, uh, her doll. And if you've seen Spike Lee's movie, Four Little Girls, about this bombing, even though he kind of focused on the McNair family, who were friends of mine for many years, long before this trial, I knew the McNair family. And Spike kind of focused a little bit more on McNair, and, and Chris was a photographer, and he, he said that that was the most, his favorite picture of his daughter. His, his daughter, Denise, with her, her, her best friend, a white, chatty cat, a white chatty Kathy doll. And so I used that picture as my picture of Denise throughout the trial. And on the night before closing arguments, I am trying to figure it all out. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm rolling, but like, a, like so many writers, I think you hit a block. And I stopped and I go in and my daughter is watching a movie called The Shawshank Redemption. And if you remember that movie, at the end of the movie, after uh, the main character had escaped from prison and Morgan Freeman's character was released, he's going to look for him. And he, he follows this path and he gets into a log and he finds a letter from his friend. Freeman's character's name Red. And this letter, I'm walking in about this time. I love the movie. And I'm walking in and I just stop. And he's reading this letter. And the letter says something about hope and that hope was a good thing and good things never die. And that dawned on me, and I told the jury the next day, you know, that, that that photograph of Denise and her doll represents everything about the case. It, it, it was an image of the children who marched through the streets of Birmingham for freedom. It was an image of the deaths of the children, of the injuries to Sarah, the fifth little girl who was in that um, ladies' lounge. It was an image of a mother's heart that never stops crying over the death of a child. But at the end, it was an image of hope a young black girl holding her best friend, a white chatty Cathy doll. And I said even in, in 2001 that, in, that, that at, at the time in 1963, it was kind of the hope of a race of people in this country. But today it's really the hope of the world and the planet. As we become closer, as we, as we get closer and, and, and with our media and everything else, that it is the hope of the planet that we all try to live together a little bit better, love each other a little bit more, respect each other a hell of a lot more. Uh, because there are people today living out here that try to destroy the hopes of so many people, whether today it is race or religion or economic status or gender, they're still trying to des destroy that hope. And it's up to us to do it all. 
the last thing I will mention before we get into some questions, and there's so much I could talk about here. I mean, I, y'all, y'all probably know this, and I've done this, and it, it, I, there are just so many things. I, I do want to tell you about the fifth little girl, though, Sarah. People f- often forget there were five little girls that day, and one survived. We all hear about the four. But Sarah Collins Rudolph uh, is Annie Mae's sister. And I'll tell you as a lawyer, it is just unbelievable, her testimony for me. She was not the most articulate witness you ever have, but you don't need that with this. She was the last witness because she was the last one down there in that ladies' lounge. And she talked about going to Sunday school that morning and how excited they were. And she went over there and they were all downstairs in the lounge getting ready for the youth worship service. And she went over to the sink to wash her hands. And she heard uh, Denise McNair say something about her dress. And she turned around to look into the room. And when she did, I asked her, I said, Sarah, what did you see? She said, well, I saw my sister tying the sash of Denise McNair's new dress. Well, then what happened? Well, there was the explosion. And I was buried underneath all this rubble. And I couldn't see. I couldn't hardly move. When I do this with a presentation, I flash this picture over here. It's in the book of this poor little black girl who's 12 years old in a hospital for three months with these really big patches over her eye. She's still blind in one eye. I said, Sarah, did you ever hear her? uh, What did you do? She said, I just called out for help. I called out for my sister. I said, what'd you say? And in this courtroom that was just as still and as quiet as you could possibly imagine, she said, I just called out, Addie, Addie, Addie. Her voice just rising in the courtroom like it did 37, 38 years earlier. Did you ever see her, uh, hear her respond? No, sir. Did you ever see her alive again? No, sir. And with that, I looked up and said, Your Honor, the state of Alabama rests its case. It truly was a remarkable ending for a remarkable story for my city, for my state, for these families. Um, it's never too late. It's really never, ever too late to do the right thing, to seek that justice, to seek the truth. And at the end of the day, I still think there's a lot of hate out there and it's growing. And we have got, a, I think, an obligation uh, to ourselves, not, not just for me as a United States senator, but for all of us to teach our kids, to teach our neighbors, to have the dialogues that we need to be having about race relations in this, in this state, in this country. So with that, I thank you so much for being here. I really do. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so let's let's try to get we we got a, some time. I cut myself off early. I could talk for hours, but uh, we'll we'll cut this off. I do hope you in, enjoy this. It's uh, it's it was a it was a labor of love, a labor for sure, but it was a labor of love, and it's a story I think that needs to be told and is is relevant. Yes, two quick comments and a question. Yes, sir. So I'm not a voter in Alabama but I want you to know that I contributed to your campaign. All right. I'm running again. You do know that, right? Okay. Just saying. And your your campaign was very good about thanking me for that donation and asking for another one. (laughs) So I kept giving. So uh, my second comment is a little facetious, but I was trying to figure out how to get Roy Moore to run again (laughs) against you. And my question is, um, if I remember this correctly, Condoleezza Rice spoke about the impact of this bombing on her personally. Mm -hmm. So my question is a general one. How did that bombing affect you as a child and other children in the city? Well, you know, she and I came from different backgrounds. Condoleezza Rice was a member of this church, and she knew the, the, the McNair family. You got to understand, for black kids growing up in Birmingham, it affected them a lot deeper than it did a white kid growing up in Fairfield in a segregated and protected world just candidly. Uh, I lived in Fairfield, uh, which was the uh, U.S. steel town. It was the largest, second largest steelmaking town uh, in America next to Pittsburgh at the time. It was a small enclave, brand new little neighborhood, uh, all white. um, And we were protected. We didn't have social media then. We didn't have cell phones. We had three TV stations with very limited news. Um, This, the bombing did not affect me at the time that I can recall. I was a nine-year-old white boy, and it just didn't. Unlike Condoleezza, who it, it was affected so deeply, and so many of the other black kids, their experiences were just different. 
for me, it started coming to focus when in junior high was the first time I went to school with black kids. And, and that's when all of a sudden things in the world started changing for so many of us at that time. And, the, and that would have been mid 60s, I guess. And then in college and then certainly uh, in law school. You know, the other part about this, too, is that for so many years, you know, cities in the South, especially. And I say the cities in the South, it really happened a lot everywhere. But we certainly tried to not talk about this. It was just not something that we we talked about very much. It was kind of swept under the carpet. We didn't. And it was not until the 80s when uh, Alabama and it's particularly Birmingham started to celebrate its history. And I, I use that in the right sense of the word. Not proud of where we are, but certainly showcase where we had been and what happened so that the world could see and that other people could see and learn from it. And today, it's amazing. The Birmingham Civil Rights Institute is 27, 28 years old. Um, the uh, 16th Street Church, Kelly Ingram Park, has been designated as a national monument by President Obama. You've got the Rosa Parks Museum in Montgomery, and now the new Equal Justice Initiative Memorial, the Lynching Memorial. And it, and and I, it, you know, it's it's really amazing. There, are 350,000 people went through that EJI Memorial last year. Our director of tourism said Alabama saw a $1.8 billion bump in tourism last year because of two things, the EJI Memorial and the election of Doug Jones. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Congratulations on your victory and, and certainly thank you for your courage and that of your family that I'm sure must have been terribly worried. Everybody uh, The worried. years when you took this on. Uh, uh, a couple of things. One, do you think the white privilege status of uh, whites in the South, not just in the South, but in this country, accounted for the juries not being willing to convict uh, who they certainly knew were perpetrators and even however uh, well the, the case was documented and proven, you know, in the court of law? Do you think that contributed to it, the would culture? Have. Yeah, it, it would have. These cases were never brought to trial. They were never brought. You know, unlike the Medgar Evers murder, uh, that was brought twice in Mississippi. And even though they had a gun with Byron De La Beckwith's fingerprints on it that was found right across the street from Medgar Evers where he was shot on his front steps, they couldn't convict because of the prejudice of the jury, the all-white male jury. So clearly that is why I think that this case never got brought. And the white, it was not just white privilege at the time, it was right racism at the time. They just would not have done that. I mean, it was, it, it would have, it, it could have never gotten that conviction. And clearly that's what happened. I mean, the people uh, at the time, I don't think would have ever convicted folks. And it was, um, uh, that's unfortunate, but it is because and it is why J. Edgar Hoover closed the file. And it took, I think, everybody asked me um, uh, why and, and how it happened. I think it took a number of years to get past that. It was only 14 years later that Bill Baxley had a, a mostly white jury, not all white, I don't think, but it could have been, that did was able to sift through the evidence. Uh, and to do that. So that it, one, it still exists. But I think people now are at least when they go into a jury system, by and large, it still exists in certain places. They will uh, view this uh, evidence fairly. And the Blanton case in particular, um, we, we had a lot of people that came and watched the trial. And if you look, it was really a, a snapshot of of Birmingham and Alabama is a very diverse crowd that came and watched. Our jury uh, was composed of of nine whites and, and three, I think it was three, it could have been eight and four. I can't, I'm getting old folks, I can't remember all these details. Um, but our, our the defense lawyer, who, who happened to be an old friend of mine, he was a former law partner for Blanton, his name was John Robbins, we're still very, very good friends, did a great job, but he asked the question, you know, what has changed? Why are we doing this now? You know, after so long, what has changed? They had this evidence, and to some extent it was true with Blanton. A lot of the old evidence with Blanton. He said, what's changed? What are, what, what are we doing different? And so in rebuttal, I just, you know, I came up and, and, and just looked around the courtroom. I said, the answer is easy. Just look around you. What has changed? We have changed. Look in this courtroom. Look in the jury box. 
What has changed is we have changed. Look around, you see black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics sitting together. Now that wasn't my line. Um, you know, that was, and I acknowledge that in the closing argument, but there was such an important element about how Birmingham and the hearts and minds of people had changed a little bit. And, and doggone it, they were not going to let anybody get away with the murder of children. And then did you think you were going to win? I watched your, uh, yeah, you know, your, your oh, victory. The election your or the trial? The election. <laughs> yeah. The election. Yes, we did. We always thought we were, we always believed that we were going to win that race. We and you want to give a shout out to the African American. Uh, absolutely. Let me, let me finish that. My first thought, but we always thought we were going to win. Good. Uh, we Good. felt like, you know, we were, we actually got more uh, concerned about it once the allegations against my opponent came up because it became mm -hmm. very tribal. I got a little bit worried that night when we got down a little bit and behind but in the end we always felt good about where we were and what we're doing and certainly we we were able to get a huge bump up in the african-american turnout uh votes in alabama generally about 24 percent on an average election is uh 24 percent of the of the voting of the votes are generally african-americans and we were able to get that up to 29 percent it made all the difference in the world what can i say and, and I'm well we hope you win again yeah thank you Yes, sir. Senator, Senator Jones, thank you very much. I, um, as I actually was nine when 9-11 happened, and it's part of why I went down the path I did, and I work for the Navy now as a civilian. Um, what, uh, I know it's very broad, and I hope it's just not, you know, partisan. Um, what's your vision for education in the country? What you want to do with your time in office? Uh, what you want to do for your state? What you want to do for the country? Um, I know it's a very broad question, and I hope you can just take take any aspect of that you like and run with it. Okay. Um, I want world peace. Uh, let me just take a little bit of that, okay? Um, I, I really do want to lift all boats with it when it comes to education. I'm a real strong public education person. I was raised in public schools, and I believe very strongly in public school education. That's number one. Um, I think there's a lot of things that we can do right now. I, I believe that we can we can can help not only the K through 12 because so much of that is on a local level, but what I'm really concerned about is some technical education, career technical education. You know, we have got a our manufacturing sector in this country is growing. And that's a great thing. In Alabama, we got an automobile sector. Y'all know that Alabama produces the most automobiles other than, you know, we're the fifth largest automobile producer in the country. Yes, that's true. We're the third largest in exports of automobiles. Just giving a shout out to my automobiles. Um, but, you know, not every kid necessarily needs to go to college to have a really good middle class life. They can get a good job with good benefits and work until their retirement uh, with with an education that is less than a four year degree. We've just got to make sure that we get that and have that available. I think our community college, our technical colleges. Today, I met with the pre, uh, president of English Shipbuilding down in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and they've got a program there where they reach out into high schools to help foster career and technical education and it's been remarkably successful i think we got to have a little bit more partnerships with some of our 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 businesses uh with education because the states are not always funding it the way they should we were lucky where louise and i live uh that our city funded our education for our kids so it's a it's a broad vision um and um but i'm hoping i'm on the education committee I want to make sure that unlike what this administration wants to do, and that's get rid of get rid of Pell Grants, we want to expand the amount of Pell Grants out there. And, um, and, and for kids that do want to go to college, do, the kids that do want to go to college, one of the things I want to do is simplify the damn FAFSA form because it is just crazy. <laughs> so we're working on that. We're working on that, too. So thank you. Thank Senator, you. Senator, thank you very much. Yes, yes sir. Senator Jones, thank you very much for being here today. Um, I'm a college student here in the Washington, D.C. area and have had a strong interest in civil rights history for many years. After completing my studies, I'm seriously considering working in civil rights law. My question is, what, what do you think are some of the most important lessons 
that you would like future generations to learn from to learn from your book, Bending Toward Justice? Wow, that's a great question. Um, f first of all, as I said a minute ago, I think that one of the primary lessons it, it is just never ever too late to seek justice you know i said after these convictions that you know people talk about justice delayed as justice denied but it doesn't have to be you know it, it justice delayed ends up still being justice and we had it and so I, I, what i encourage people is just to never give up to always seek the, the truth, to seek the right thing, to seek, seek that justice. I also think that civil rights today has been, has been broader than it used to be. As I said a minute ago, I think, too, that it's, it's no longer just an issue of black and white. We have issues of, of those that are disabled uh, that, that deserve a place in society as well, that deserve opportunities if they want to take those. We have um, gender issues out there. You know, I'm a, I'm a sponsor on the uh, Fair Paycheck Act. It, the e Equal Pay Act was passed over 50 years ago, but yet every study shows that men, women still make less than their male counterparts. And for women of color... It's even greater. And uh, for some reason, we can't get that on the floor of the U.S. Senate with Senator McConnell. And I'd, it, it's going to pass the House, but I don't know if we'll ever get it on the, on the floor. So I guess the, one of the points is that it, it is beyond just black and white now. But the, I think we have to have more discussions and we have to have good, aggressive lawyers that work for those who have who who are the less fortunate that are still suffering from the discrimination that we have in this society and we have it in in so many so many different places i hope that that answers your question thank you yes ma'am hi thank you senator jones for coming out tonight um i'm also from the birmingham area i was born and raised there and moved here about seven years ago Good. and love home but have a very strong uh, love-hate relationship because yeah. there's still things that happen that make me very sad such as the viral video that yes. happened this week and I also work at a high school here and we have a lot of conversations and program with our students around race and equity all of my students are black aside from two we have those conversations with them my question is what about in Alabama what are we doing in our schools in Alabama to have those same conversations so that way we have fewer incidents what are we doing to create those spaces we're not doing enough I can tell you that. What That's, can we do? Well, I, I, I think you've got to have, first of all, I, th I think the whole community's got to have that, those conversations. You know, unfortunately, um, in Alabama and a lot of places in the country, we seem to be more segregated now than we were 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, it's not just by law per se, but it's by where people live and how things are going. And that's a real problem. I think that's a real problem because without that integrated society, uh, I think it's harder to have those discussions. Um, I was disappointed uh, and, and shocked when I saw that video that you're talking about. Uh, but I also know from our own experiences with our kids that it also happens that there is a problem. I think social media is a real problem with that today. I don't think it's as much as it used to be where it was a learned behavior from parents, even though that still exists too. But I think there is so much hate out there on the internet now. Uh, and people get revved up uh, by watching some of this. And we've got to teach people. Uh, there's, there's some great courses out there on teaching tolerance and other things. But it's this, those discussions. What I'd like to see, and there's a bill that, that, that we've introduced about having teachers as leaders and not just teachers that will give them some tools to try to lead in their communities. And I think if we can start in the schools with teachers who are willing to have those open and honest dialogues, and that's that's, I think, really what it what it takes, because, you know, I, I would bet you those same kids. And I don't know if you all know what she's talking about. There were some high school kids in Birmingham that got caught at a party and they were saying some of the ugliest stuff that I've heard kids say in a long, long time. And it went viral, hit national news. But I bet you those same kids are going to cheer for the black a uh, uh, football player that, that scores the touchdown. They're going to march beside them in the band. They're going to cheer next to them, you know, but they don't really talk to them. And that's, I think, part of the problem. And that's one of the things that I think has been a problem over the years. And if we can, if we can ever break through that, because I do believe this, it's, a, it's an issue, but I also think there's, there's still a work in progress and there's still progress being made. We've still come a long way. But we've got so much more to do. And, I, 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 and maybe I'm really naive about this, but I think social media has really hurt us more 
the hate sites and the and the, what you hear and see on the internet, where people can sit in their own room and and the quiet and the and and, and let their fears get away with them, because so much of this is based on fears that they will say things and do things on the internet that they would never do, but now people are starting to say it in public. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hi, Senator Jones. Uh, I also lived in Mississippi and Alabama for 10 years. In that time, you spoke to groups that I brought to Birmingham oh, awesome. uh, yeah. three times over three years. And I just wanted to say to the audience, um, you took time away from your family to do that. And while we're celebrating a book here tonight, I think we also need to celebrate you as a person uh, and the work that you do. It's amazing and it's very appreciated back home. Well, and let me say this. I, I appreciate that very much. I, I really do. Uh, you need to celebrate the family, too, that I wasn't uh, having dinner with that night. Um, isn't that right, honey? <laughs> You know, I, I had a little event the other day and we were we were talking at a, a, a house the other day. It was a little campaign event and, and I, they were going to introduce me. And, and when they, I get introduced, I always usually try to to make sure that I say something and, and, and talk about Louise being my running mate and all this. But this just kind of evolved. And I went through the whole thing without ever in, introducing her. She's just standing there the whole time. And I thought. But I heard about it later after we left, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> but thank you for that very much. And thank you. My, my question is, uh, I was just curious about the work of investigative journalists such as Jerry Mitchell, their roles oh. in this, and what you see the role of journalism being in our contemporary moment. Oh, let, let me tell you, the, the, the Jerry's work, if you, you know, Jerry's book is going to come out one of these days. I hope I'm still alive when he finally gets it out. Jerry Mitchell is the father of all these civil rights cases, to be honest with you. It was Jerry Mitchell who was reporting for the Jackson Clarion Ledger that went and reviewed all of the Sovereignty Commission files in Mississippi and saw that there was a fraud perpetrated on the court in the Medgar Evers case. Because while they had all this great evidence and the state was prosecuting Byron Day LeBeck with another, uh, the Sovereignty Commission and all were helping create a bogus alibi for him. And Jerry opened that up. Incredible. He's opened, I think, he started, he's got a new job with a, a, a foundation for investigative journalism. I think we're losing some of that. You've, we, you, up here, you're, you've got the Post. You've got the New York Times. In Alabama, we don't have it. We used to have some really good investigative journalism, and it's essentially gone. We have opinion writers and we have people that won't clickbait. And that's all we have in some, of, in some of this. I think we're losing a lot of the great investigative journalism. I hope it will return, just like I'm glad that independent bookstores are returning uh, today after a, a little bit of down. I'm, I'm really glad that independent bookstores are on their way up. So, First of all, let me uh, express, I'm sure, the whole group's uh, joy in your victory. I think it's symbolic of hope in the future uh, for people to come together for the right reasons Thank to you. elect people like you. And I certainly hope you will be elected again. Uh, I sent some support earlier and I will do the same again. All right, Maybe you're good. Maybe some, some, some footwork down there. <laughs> uh, uh, I've been around legislation myself off and on and we have to find ways to improve the electoral process. Hmm. And uh, there is a lot of uh, voter suppression going on. Yep gerrymandering, which is being tackled by some smart people. I hope that will be dealt with. But this, one of the things I was, I've watched is the vo voting by mail, mm -hmm. which I think for communities that I'm familiar with, far southeast, Anacostia, those kinds of uh, communities can use that as a tool if it's properly managed. Right. A key to that is postage. Yep. A lot of the mail didn't get in because people didn't have a stamp. That sounds like a small thing, but in some communities, post office are convenient, and a fifty cent, fifty dollar, a dollar stamp can be a, right. a problem. I think it may even be a poll tax. I think that federally, without any difficulty, we can pass regulations at the postal system that says any mail dealing with mail, post off, mail in ballots should be free. I'll there should be no stamp required for that kind of an action. Yeah, and it doesn't require any national movement. Just requires you to get around the postal system. I, I think and it's say a, put a, a no mail should require a stamp dealing with mail, mail in ballots or receiving mail in ballots. That's a that's a good idea. We'll 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 take a look at easy, that. I know that easy correction. My 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 son lived in Colorado for a while. They had mail in, and there is a lot of voter suppression. We've got a, a couple of bills pending now yeah. to try to put some teeth back into the voting rights. But that's that's a good one to look at. I I'm not as optimistic that it could pass under the current makeup of the U.S. Senate. We're gonna we'll change see. that. All right. There very good. Yes, ma'am.
quick question. Um, with the elections coming up, what is your insight and wisdom from your experience about how to energize the growing minority communities without completely alienating working class and uh, and uh, rural whites? I, you know, I think that that is going to be the key to the elections. I mean, I, you just nailed it. And when you find that answer, please let me know. <laughs> No, you know, I, I, I wish I had an answer. There is there is some a, a lot going on and the, there's a lot of discussions about that because and I'll just give you my sense of what I did in this election and what I think is as successful uh, or can be. And that is to, number one, be authentic on who you are and not be afraid to talk about the issues that you believe in, because I believe that all of those communities have more in common than we have to the divide us. The problem that we've got right now is that so many people use those issues of division, and that's all you hear from them, is the, is the politics of division. You know, in my race, we really did a lot to try to make sure that I gave the same kind of stump speech to a chamber of commerce that I would give the black ministers. And, and, and when you talk about education and you talk about healthcare, I think it can energize uh, people because it's personal. It's those kitchen table issues. And I think that we have to, you know, there are, there are a lot of people, a lot of Democrats who think it's very important to talk about identity politics. I'm not one of those. I think we need to talk about our, our beloved community because we're all part of the same community. And I want to make sure that those folks in rural uh, uh, Alabama know that their issues at the end of the day are the same as the issues in in um the black belt of Alabama, they're the same issues as in, in uh, urban Alabama. It's, I think, issue, issues, issues that we've got to do. And we're not going to find people that agree with us on everything. That's the other thing that too many politicians make, um, I think, are a problem. They, they think they need to be all things to all people. You can't do it. You can't do it. And you got to sit down with people that disagree with you and just say, look, we just need to disagree with each other without being disagreeable. And have a conversation because sooner or later you're going to find something to work on. And that's what I think is the keys to su success. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Yes. I've been to uh, Alabama and Montgomery and the Rosa Parks Museum. And I've noticed that there's this kind of proliferation of civil rights uh, museums, et cetera, and this willingness to come to terms with this, the old segregated South right. past. And I'm wondering, is this an anomaly? And if it is, why is that? Is Are there other examples throughout the old segregated South where this sort of recognition is taking root? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, look, there are now museums in Mississippi. There are museums in South Carolina. You've got museums in Tennessee and in Georgia. Uh, I, I don't think it is an anomaly at all. I think that, that, that people, as, we, as the generations change, people see the importance of learning that history. I will tell you that we don't teach that history enough. I truly do not believe that we don't teach the civil rights history enough. And we taught it. If we taught it more and better, we might not see the problems that we've got right now. I mean, I really do believe that. I used to teach the teachers that would come through Birmingham. I would always try to speak to that, that would learn about this. So I think you're going to continue to see uh, to see that. And I think as 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 we age, so to speak, I think you're going to see more and more of those issues because, look, let's face it, in Alabama, it's an economic driver and money talks. And look what happened to Alabama last year with EJI. And so the more that we can get that for whatever reason, even if it's money driven, I think you're going to see more and more. And the, and the fact that we're getting those, the things documented and getting things out. The EJI Memorial in, in Montgomery started because the Equal Justice Initiative and Brian Stevenson went through and tried to document every lynching that occurred in America. They documented thousands and they put them on display. And we need to be able to see our past. In order to protect us and other southern states or uh, I don't know if, know if they've got any other offices, but they work nationwide. I mean, it's kind of like the Southern Poverty Law Center. Their offices are in Montgomery and they do a phenomenal job. But they were, you know, Brian handles cases all over the country. He mainly does a lot of death penalty work for indigents uh, around the country. So one more I think we got. Yes, sir. Uh, Senator, firstly, uh, coming from Maryland's Eastern Shore, our mutual friend Joe Trippy says hello. Oh, yeah. Sends his regards. Yeah, you want, I've got Joe on the speed <laughs> dial. <laughs> uh, 
recognizing that, um, and, and I'm sorry, this personal, but for defining experience in my life was serving our country. And through that experience, exposure to people from all walks of mm -hmm. life. So the real question is, what is your position on national service? Do you think it's possible we could bring it back and bring people together in that regard it, so we're not siloed? It, it's it's possible. I think it's gonna I think it'll be tough unless there's a national emergency that's not on the southern border. Um, okay. All right. All right. Y'all are a little slow tonight. It's getting late, I can tell. Um, I, I think national service would be a, a, a fine idea. I, but I got to tell you, I, it, it's hard for me to say that since I, I didn't have to, I wasn't drafted. You know, I, I signed up, but the draft ended. And I think it's really difficult sometimes. But one of the things I'd like to see is I'd like to see, I'd like to see uh, kids, I'd like to see us be able to do something with the military to get more kids interested, both both men and women, uh, as well as uh, all from all walks of life. Right now, in this country, right now, we've got a real problem with service uh, in the military because so many kids today just will not qualify Health-wise, they will not qualify at all. Well, what, at, my, when, at my age, when you went in front of the judge and you were a JD, juvenile delinquent, right? You had a choice, right? Son, it's the army or it's jail. Uh, yeah, no I understand that. Uh, I don't think you have that now, but I'm I'm telling you, we have <laughs> we I am now on the Armed Services Committee and trying to and trying to and uh, to get the numbers up in the military is a challenge in part because of 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 juvenile delinquents and in part because they're just not fit for service right. and that's Na a real national problem. service is comprehensive right it's not it could be americorps it could be sure. corps. we're not just talking military yeah so when i speak i'd broadly. love to, i'd love to see something i'm just not sure it, it's it's really feasible at this point but thank you well folks uh this has been wonderful thank you all for coming tonight um it's really been great thank you